Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 10th of October, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Mark Anderson from the United States. Uh, well, we'll start off with um, the European political community meeting that took place last week. Let's get them on screen because they are a delightful bunch, aren't they? Yes, Mark. yes, yes, because <laughs> they stand firm with Ukraine, as you can see. Now, we reported that uh, Liz Truss was going to this meeting uh, earlier. I think it was Monday last week. Uh, and uh, so this was the first meeting of the European political community. It took place in Prague on Thursday. Uh, and well, the government issued a press release, a couple of press releases and some photographs. So here she is with uh, Macron, whose idea this whole thing was, apparently. Uh, it's all about fostering political dialogue and cooperation to, to address the issues of common interest. Uh, and it's about strengthening security, stability and prosperity in the European continent. And what we point we made was that the, the uh, security bit means defence. So here she is signing something and we're not entirely sure what she was signing because they didn't tell us. Um, and here is the press release. If anybody wants to go and find it, Prime Minister welcomes powerful show of solidarity at European leaders meeting and they're talking about energy and so on, but they're not talking about security or defence. And then on Friday evening, uh, the Express published this. Liz Truss warned she could be falling into EU army trap with new military agreement. Um, so let's have a look and see what, uh, well, a couple of people were quoted in it. First of all, we've got uh, Gerald Howarth here, the former defence minister, saying this is very serious and we must be very careful. The issue around PESCO, this is permanent structured cooperation is that uh, the structures are permanent. We must not sign up to anything which undermines our sovereignty and where we do not have a veto. And then he fell into type, uh, which of course is the narrative from the government from the beginning on this issue of UK involvement in European defence. Uh, second, we must do not do anything that undermines NATO. If we haven't learned anything over the last few months, it's sorry, if we have learned anything over the last few months is that we need NATO for the defense of Western values and Europe against our enemies, which at the moment is clearly Russia. Now, uh, Gerald Horath, they're clearly positioning himself. Russia is the enemy. Well, actually, if we go back a few years, uh, Alex uh, reported this incident, uh, which took place because he was hosting a meeting of the all party, par all party parliamentary group in on Ukraine in 2017. Uh, and he said at that meeting that the all party party parliamentary group on Ukraine exists to ensure that the UK government is or the UK parliament is constantly aware of the challenges that are faced by Ukraine and a particular journalist stood up and uh, commented on this Graham Phillips will you be commenting on how Ukraine is shelling and killing civilians in Donbass because I think that should be on the agenda and as you can see uh, from the still from the video the audience turned around and said liar shut up get him out and he was indeed manhandled out by the uh, by this uh, security team. What a reflection on UK, Mike, that somebody stands up and warns that people are being attacked and whoever the audience was in that environment, they didn't want to hear that. No. And of course, Graham Phillips now has been sanctioned by the UK government. So anyway, that's that's Horth and, and his background. But another person quoted by The Express in their article was uh, Marc Francois, the uh, chair of the ERG, the European Research Group. This is a Brexit uh, group within the Tory party and a former member of the Defence Select Committee. And he said, as we're outside the EU, we can adopt, uh, we can opt into individual PESCO projects if they have merit and looking at how we could speed up reinforcing the Baltic states from the UK across internal EU borders may well have military advantages. 
So he's now fully on board with this idea, it seems, uh, even though he's supposed to be a Brexiteer, however. Uh, it is NATO that remains the bedrock of our security, especially in deterring further Russian adventurism. And we should never forget that. So again, parroting uh, the UK government narrative over the last lot of years on this issue of defence union. Um, so anyway, just getting back to the original uh, European political community uh, event, let's just see what Joseph Borrell, the effectively EU foreign minister, said about it. Is brutal aggression against Ukraine. Europe has entered in a new phase of our history. And today, 44 European leaders gather here together in order to study how to build the new security structure in Europe. It has to be done without Russia, not because we don't want Russia to be part of Europe, but because the Russia's Putin has taken out of the European community. European community is formed by these 44 states. Some of them are members of the European Union, and others, they are not. Some they don't want to, others they were members and they left, and others are still not members, but they will become members. And altogether has to define the new lines for the Europeans. Europe has to face the crisis created by the war in Ukraine, has to build a new security order to face the food and energy crisis. And this forum, this community, this political community is the best way for the Europeans, all Europeans, inside the Union and outside the Union to face it. Well, my, my take on that, Mike, is that they're, they're in absolute chaos because they simply do not know what to do. Those sanctions have not worked. These have been the big things that they were going to bring Russia under control by a whole variety of sanctions. The Russians can just continue to do what they were doing. And now it's clear that the only people that the sanctions have hurt are, are people in Europe and UK and the US. Uh, but for Europe, they do not know what to do at the moment. Well, uh, but what they have done is to create this new group, uh, the UK, which has always said it would not take part in European Defence Union projects, uh, that NATO was the bedrock of everything, has now decided that it wants to be part of PESCO, which is one of the key pillars of European Defence Union. Uh, and, uh, well, the key point here is there has been zero uh, commentary. There are no press releases, nothing in the British press, nothing in the European press about it. Uh, and just to clarify, other than that Express article, and just to which really didn't give very much in the way of detail, but to clarify that Liz Truss appears to have uh, asked for membership of PESCO. There was a vote held, and that vote has approved the UK's membership of PESCO. Um, so anyway, uh, just to give a little bit of, of, of background to this, um, we'll come on to a video with Ursula von der Leyen in a second. The point here is that... Uh, the European Union always considered uh, Africa, in particular North Africa, to be its southern neighbourhood and a really key part of its uh, area of influence. Um, and, but what we've seen in the, in the recent uh, months, and really, again, getting very little coverage in the press, has been uh, more and more active warfare in the Sahel in particular. So here's an example. A uh, tweet here from a couple of days ago. Uh, a coup has taken place in Burkina Faso. That, and the Wagner Group, uh, brackets, mercenaries who act covertly for Moscow, has declared support for the new leader uh, and, uh, and so on. That Burkina Faso has had multiple uh, coups in recent years as colonial influence clashes with growing anti-Western bloc. Um, and, uh, well, 
one person who uh, who has been sort of quoted on this is Alexander Ivanov because he's been asked, uh, you know, what is the Wagner Group's influence in Africa? And he said, well, he doesn't speak for them, so he can't speak for them. But he does speak for uh, the Officers Union for International Security, uh, which, according to this article, is famous for its example of effective cooperation with between Russia and African nations and this particular report talking about the Central African Republic, uh, where it's where this organization is represented by Russian instructors who managed in a short time to instruct the soldiers of the Central African Armed Forces, uh, which allowed the Central African government to create a powerful army uh, ready to defend national interests and ensure the protection of civilians against armed groups widespread in the country. And this is the problem. Uh, Islamic insurgency has been, in particular, uh, a, a problem for many of these countries. Um, let's have a look at this uh, from African Hub. Uh, many African leaders taking a very anti-Western position at the moment. So uh, this is uh, the president of Uganda talking to CNN about uh, LGBTQ, uh, LBTQ and saying, we don't want this in, this in our country. Uh, but it's coming anyway through Western NGOs uh, and really saying that it's not acceptable. Uh, then we have this from France 24. Uh, Niger becomes France's partner of last resort after Mali withdrawal because the French, uh, who have, are the sort of main boots on the ground in the region, um, have, uh, have had to move out from Mali uh, because they're not wanted there anymore. Uh, but then we've also got the Chinese influence as well. So uh, Russia and China uh, China, massive investment, in this case, this article highlighting Djibouti, where China has uh, what is described as a military base, uh, but also Japan has a military base there as well. So there's a potential conflict there too. So what has this got to do with European Defence Union? Well, we have a little bit of video here uh, from, uh, I think it was February 2019. Uh, this is Ursula von der Leyen and Tony Blair uh, speaking separately, but apparently from the same hymn sheet. Uh, now, many of you will have seen this before, many of you won't have, but this maybe gives us a clue as to what's going on here. First of all, um, our collective defence, uh, we are ironclad committed to NATO. NATO of 29, um, that is collective defence article 5. But there are problems and issues where I do not see NATO but Europe has to be able to act. Though this transatlantic alliance with America is extremely important and we need to maintain it, the best partnership is a partnership where we have our own capabilities that are also strong. I was talking about Africa. This is not a typical place for NATO. We are very committed to NATO in other places, but um, Africa is a place where we need to be able to act as Europeans. For example, one of the things that my institute does is work um, in Africa, and at the moment we're particularly focused on the Sahel group of countries. That's that band of countries across the north part of sub-Saharan Africa, where you've got exploding populations, um, dire poverty, radicalization, and extremism. We may well face the next wave of migration and extremism from those countries. It makes perfect sense for Europe to have the military capability to help those countries with their security. And for that, we created the European Defence Union right. um, to have a comprehensive approach with <clears throat> diplomacy, economic development, right. and the military means. 
Right. So, so what, what we have here is, is Russia being used as the driver to push forward with this European Defence Union uh, policy. Britain now on board despite Brexit. Uh, but in the meantime, massively underreported is the, is the continuing chaos in Africa, uh, where, of course, the Europeans themselves see their military capability as having most influence. And what's interesting here, uh, Brian, is that, of course, these countries that are experiencing insurgencies and chaos and so on are on the receiving end of huge quantities of foreign office conflict security and stability fund money. And also Tony Blair, who, who's supposed to be in there to uh, counter insurgency. Uh, it seems that everywhere he goes, there ends Trouble up being more insurgency. Yeah. So, uh, so th th I'm trying to give a picture of, of that. I don't know what your thoughts are. Well, I'd, I just want to add that uh, perhaps our viewers and listeners would like to go and have a look at the uh, Tony Blair's Africa Governance Initiative. And that gives you a real overview of where Tony Blair is. Of course, it's all about helping the poorer nations. Tony Blair is going to get in there. He's going to help these people. But as you've just said, Mike, there's an uncanny pattern that wherever the British or the uh, Europeans are getting involved in Africa, strife and trouble follows. And again, it's Russia and China that are the sort of uh, opposition, the enemy there. Uh, now, uh, just if you want to get a bit of extra background on this, have a look at uh, this page on the UK Column website. There's a whole range of articles. There's a timeline and so on that gives uh, that shows the development of the EU military unification slash defence union policy. Where does that take us? Uh, this is taking us to oh. your report on the bridge. Well, the no, bridge no, no, and, no. Uh, well, it's, it's, and Zelensky, it's, I think. Yes, I just wanted to highlight this page on the BBC uh, website because... because uh, uh, John uh, Simpson interviewed Zelensky, and uh, apparently Zelensky struck all the right notes, Brian. Uh, he's a quiet, charming, unassuming man. Uh, so let's have a look and see what they, what they said in that report. Uh, Zelensky is a quiet, charming, and unassuming man. He famously He's famously an actor by profession and played the part of the president of Ukraine on television long before he was elected to the actual job. Uh, maybe, of course, the quiet charm and apparent lack of assumption are part of the act. Uh, you'd need to know him uh, a great deal better to be able to be sure about that. My guess is not, though. Yes. So clearly, this is uh, this is a, a puff piece, uh, as you might say. Uh, a few days ago, though, he got something wrong, uh, says John Simpson, and seeming and seemed to be calling for a preemptive strike to stop Russia using its battle, battlefield nuclear weapons, uh, relatively small yield bombs that would have an appalling effect locally, but would be fairly limited in the damage they did over a wider area. Zelensky's words weren't well chosen and they handed Moscow an easy win, but only for a few hours, Brian, don't worry about it, it was an easy win, only for a few hours. When I interviewed him, uh, says John Simpson, uh, he was sufficiently anxious to dampen down the criticism by making his defense in English. He meant, he said, preemptive sanctions, uh, which the West should impose on Russia to dissuade President Putin and his generals from opening up Europe's first nuclear war. Just brilliant piece of journalism by the BBC that uh, to suggest that Zelensky would get sanctions and nuclear weapons confused. Uh, but of course, he's a wonderful man. He is an actor. And that's absolutely right, because that's what he does best is acts one thing while he does a, something completely different. But but the BBC attempting to downplay a call to use nuclear weapons. Yes. Just unbelievable. It gets better uh, because this is how they ended it. Uh, I wondered if this very public refusal to consider negotiating with Vladimir Putin was a signal to other Russian political leaders 
that if they wanted to end the war, they would have to push Putin aside. After speaking to him about it, I decided not. He doesn't seem to have the slightest interest in Putin as a person and has no respect whatever for him as a war leader who micromanages the fighting in, in angry calls with his generals. Uh, so again, apologizing for the fact that, that Ukraine will not consider any kind of negotiations at this stage. Yeah. Uh, and when that's exactly what's needed. And we're getting a little bit more information there. Micromanages the fighting in angry calls to his generals. This is down to the root of it. And this is why there's been so many disasters on the Ukrainian battlefield, because Zelensky's constantly got his finger in the pie. I know what they're talking about, but he's talking about Putin micromanaging. Oh, Putin. Oh, yes. OK. All right. My apologies. Um, I read that one completely wrong, but it's difficult to know with the BBC. Um, I'll stand by my comments that uh, Zelensky is himself micromanaging because this is a this is something that's been reported and of course is giving the uh, US and UK European special forces who are in Ukraine problems in how to conduct the battle. So it's pot and kettle on this one, I think. OK, right? which brings us to the Times. Uh, well, let's come on to this because uh, this is the Times bridge blast. This is the Crimea bridge, which uh, was hit a couple of days ago. Uh, Putin said, well, I think quite rightly, an act of terrorism. But uh, let's just uh, identify what we're looking at on screen. Note the headline. Uh, what is the Times good for? Well, it's best for football. This is a very important thing. It's also best for matters to do with Harry Potter. So let's understand what this supposed newspaper record is about, football and Harry Potter. Uh, but what they're homing in on is uh, a lot of Ukrainians have been gloating about the attack on the bridge by standing in front of this uh, created mural and having, a, uh, having selfies or taking selfies. Um, and uh, if we move on to a more serious article here for the Times, blow to Putin as Crimea bridge damaged in huge explosion. Now, there hasn't been really any serious analysis in how this, uh, how this um, took place. We know that there was explosives in a truck. And I think the other thing that we know very clearly is that the conduct of the war in Ukraine and uh, special operations, these are being facilitated uh, by the help with special operatives from the West. And that includes special forces from uh, the US, the UK and other uh, European agencies. But of course, it also includes the dirty ops brigade, such as the CIA, who admit that they had operatives in Ukraine from many years ago. Those people haven't been pulled out. They've been reinforced. So when we look at the damage uh, to, the, uh, to the Crimea bridge, we need to ask ourselves, who really facilitated the attack? Was it Zelensky, the actor? the uh, nice man, as the BBC describes him, or was this a very stupid Zelensky with the help of uh, special operatives from the, um, from the US and the UK and others? I'm going to suggest that it's the latter. Um, Mark, I wonder whether we could just bring you in here. What, can you tell us anything about the sort of reaction in, in the States to this attack on the bridge? Did it make significant headlines or was it yet another event in Ukraine which simply disappears in probably the energy dust? Yeah, probably the latter. I can't say I've watched a lot about it. I've been studying other matters, but I think it would veer toward the latter, that it would it would be in the news cycle for one cycle 
and then go out with the wash, if you'll pardon the metaphor. Um, just to kind of cover a little more of what you said in the last couple of minutes, uh, it sounds like the, the UK, it, with respect to the EU military uni, uh, unification and, and uh, EU military and NATO matters, it sounds like they're becoming more interventionist, uh, meddling in Africa, things like that, taking more of a US approach, going beyond their normal theater and being more interventionist over a wider geographical area. That's the way it's looking. They're so that, that's rather unsettling, if, if I'm correct. No, you are correct. And they've been dying for this capability for a very long time. Uh, and, and really, it's been the, the, the sort of general uh, slowness of the EU to, to move that has kept it back so far. So they've, been, they've now got themselves some new momentum once again. Yeah, and that's also evidenced by um, NATO making overtures in South America, which we've reported. Yes, yes. Well, let's follow this story through. Um, some more serious pictures again from Forbes. And uh, let's have a look at what they say. Russian brigades in southern Ukraine depended on one major bridge. Now they're cut off from resupply. Now, this headline is complete is complete uh, fantasy world because, of course, even if the bridge was uh, destroyed, Russia is operating and is easily capable of a huge increase in the boat traffic that it uh, can bring supplies across. Uh, but this is part of the propaganda that suddenly Ukraine had done something which was so extraordinary, it was going to undermine the whole of the Russian capability in the Donbass uh, regions and, and through into their new republics. Um, so we're just going to label this one uh, sensationalist inaccurate propaganda, which is coming out from the West. Let's have a look at a little uh, film clip. Now we've put these uh, individual clips together. We're going to thank the various people who took the footage in the first place. We're not able to identify all those people, uh, but from it we get a good idea of how quickly uh, the Russians started to deal with the damage. Let's have a look at this clip. So in the matter of a few days, the Russians took care of the damage on the, the uh, bridge. They removed the dam damaged rail um, uh, oil tanker wagons. Those were removed by crane, as we could see. Uh, they then opened the rail. They opened the road bridge. And the last little clip, uh, clip was of the first train actually moving uh, through into the Crimea. So in the matter of hours, this damage was dealt with. But of course, the West was putting it out as though this was going to undermine the whole of the Ukrainian war effort uh, in the southern part of, of Ukraine itself. So utter madness. But of course, has Russia responded? Well, without doubt, because they're now attacking um, strategic infrastructure in Ukraine itself. And uh, this was a wonderful opportunity for the uh, BBC to big up their reporters. Let's... Uh, uh, let's just uh, have a look at this video clip of a missile strike um, uh, principally on um, generating uh, electricity generating infrastructure 
and this one's in Kiev itself. Saw yesterday uh, that a residential area of the city of Zaporizhia, a major city in the south of the country, very close to the front lines, uh, was hit. Uh, more than a dozen. So. Okay, Hugo Bashega there, our correspondent in uh, Kyiv, obviously for obvious reasons, taking cover at that point. But just talking us through the, the latest on uh, the situation with regards to Ukraine. So there we are, the BBC and its reporters shocked that the Russians are now responding to, to earlier attacks from Ukraine itself. But uh, if we follow the reporting through, this is part of the BBC's uh, report package on their website today. So here's the reporter as he turned, and uh, let's see what they say. Ukrainian war, BBC journalist ducks as explosions happen in central Kiev. The journalist Hugo Bachiga was delivering a news report when several explosions happened in the centre of Ukraine's capital city. Just over an hour later, after heading to shelter with his camera crew, the BBC re-established contact with Hugo. Um, now, what they didn't do, if I can just add it in, in there, is they didn't mention uh, BBC media action at all. And let's remember it's the BBC's charity that set up the centralised Ukrainian media system, uh, helping Zelensky pump out all of his uh, propaganda reports. That's not mentioned. But this little uh, segment here led me to believe, at least, that uh, uh, he took cover for some time, at least an hour, and then what are we going to see? Well, he's taken, he's taken to the basement in order to make a further report. Let's have a look at this second news clip. So we're here in the shelter of our hotel. Obviously, uh, we came here uh, after we heard that sound of, the, of what appeared to be a missile uh, here uh, over Kiev, and uh, it hit a location very close to our hotel here in the city centre. Uh, we understand that several uh, explosions uh, have uh, happened uh, here in the capital and we had an update from the emergency services saying that several people have been killed and wounded as a result of these uh, attacks that happened after eight o'clock in the morning uh, here in Kyiv. And all morning we've been talking about the possibility and the fear here in Ukraine of a strong Russian response to that explosion on Saturday uh, that hit the Crimea bridge. A very significant explosion because uh, the bridge is very symbolic. It was opened by President Putin in 2018. It's a personal project to perhaps symbolize that Crimea was Russian. So uh, it is very important for President Putin personally. So there was the fear today uh, that uh, some uh, strong response uh, was going to come from Russia. And it seems that we're seeing it this morning with the capital being attacked and several cities across the country being hit as well this morning. So a couple of points there. The first one is he's acknowledging that whoever decided to carry out the attack on the uh, Crimea bridge knew that it was a target that was going to really enrage the Russians. And the BBC, of course, gloating because they knew that once that attack had gone in, uh, there was going to be the attacks back on uh, Ukraine, Kiev itself. Um, so BBC in there ramping up the rhetoric, helping to foment the war as we have seen them do in Ukraine. But what interested me in particular was the little uh, shot of uh, Hugo standing there 
clearly in the car park of that hotel because it's not packed with Ukrainians. Uh, what can we actually see in the background? Well, I attempted to have a little bit of a closer look because I was interested in this group of people. And I've got a feeling, Mike, that these are all journalists. When he's talking about we, he's talking about the fact that this hotel, where, wherever it is, is uh, simply journalists who've taken shelter, whereas presumably the rest of the Ukrainians are bravely carrying on their day, even though the attacks are coming in. Mm. I might have this wrong, but I think this is all hype as if they were having to shelter for the rest of the day in a bunker uh, when this is not really the truth as to what's happening. But the BBC reports uh, continued. Uh, this one was interesting. What led up to today's attacks? And they start talking uh, about uh, the bridge. Um, but they're also saying, well, of course, there's been a response from the Russians. And uh, now it comes brutal payback. So it's not brutal that people were killed on the bridge, not brutal that uh, uh, Donetsk is shelled, but for anything that the Russians do, this is brutal uh, payback. And everything is to do with attacks, apparently, on civilians. So, Mike, some of this is just difficult to comment on because it's now so blatant that the BBC is simply putting out a story but how's the war going for Ukraine? Let's just move on to this subject uh, because um, now we've got something else moving worldwide. And I was fascinated that this was business inside of South Africa. Ukraine is, is uh, no longer low on artillery ammunition because Russia abandoned so much of it. So apparently due to the fact that the Russians pulled back from some uh, areas, uh, they apparently left so much ammunition that this has solved the whole of Ukraine's ammunition crisis. Now, this South African report linked back through to the Wall Street Journal. This is the headline from the Wall Street Journal. Ukraine's new offensive is fueled by captured Russian weapons. They've been so successful, they've captured thousands of pieces of ordnance, and this is allowing them to carry out an offensive except there is no offensive at the moment. What are the comments from the article? The Russians no longer have a firepower advantage. We, that's the Ukrainians, smashed up all their artillery units before launching the offensive. And then we started to move ahead so fast that they didn't even have time to fuel up and load their tanks. They just fled and left everything behind. Well, this is a surprise that these attacks are happening on Ukraine at the moment. Uh, because apparently everything the Russians had was destroyed. Let's have a look at the second comment from the Wall Street Journal. And uh, if we put that on screen, combined with weapons taken during Russia's retreat from Kiev and other parts of northern Ukraine in April, these recent gains have turned Moscow into by far the largest supplier of heavy we weapons for Ukraine, well ahead of the US or other allies in sheer numbers According to open source intelligence analysts, Western provided weapons, though, are usually more advanced and precise. Um, Mark, I'm looking at your face as I'm reading that. I'm going to come back to you because the truth of the matter is that neither the US nor UK nor the EU is capable of providing Ukraine with weapons and ammunition uh, in the numbers they need in order to fight a successful war against the, uh, the Russians. Uh, but we're now led this cock and bull story that they've managed to capture some equipment and that's apparently solved the whole problem.
this is this is the state, the states in UK and and uh, the US starting to believe its own propaganda. I think. Yeah, the the thing that's really jarring about this is not so much the countries involved; it's the media that they just say these things hands down like they're absolute truth. I mean, logically speaking, why would a well-equipped, strong, well-seasoned Russian army, and I'm not taking sides in the battle, I'm being objective, why would they abandon that level of weaponry? It just makes no sense at all. It doesn't fit the profile of Putin or anything that the Russians do militarily. So the fact that they report this with a straight face without asking any questions is, is the most jarring thing of all. Yeah. Well, we just uh, rub it home. This is uh, Yahoo News uh, pushing out Business Insider, which seems to be one of the key origins of this story. Here's the headline. Ukraine is no longer low on artillery ammo because Russia abandoned so much in recent retreats, the report says. Uh, what I noticed, if you look at the photographs of that ammunition, is a lot of it is rusty. And if there's one thing that recent ammunition is not going to be, it's rusty because this makes it dangerous to fire. And so I believe that what we're seeing in this picture is a historic picture of ammunition that's been uh, captured during the war. So I think this is a, a planted article effectively. Uh, but this is the reality. So the defense posts here saying that the United States will soon be unable to provide Ukraine with certain types of ammunition that are essential. And this is because uh, the Americans, but it's also true of UK and the EU, simply do not have the infrastructure, uh, the production infrastructure to produce weapons and, and ammunition in the quantity that the Ukrainians uh, need. So this is a uh, one of many articles recognizing that even with billions of dollars of support going into Ukraine, uh, Ukraine is not going to get the volumes of weapons and ammunition it needs, and they know it. But this is something uh, something else, and it's something that has been reported. So it's there in uh, plain sight, but not many of people have picked up on it. And it's to do with uh, Elon Musk and his satellites. Uh, so here's the headline here. Elon Musk needs to clarify Ukraine's reported Starlink outages. And it goes back to a Financial Times article uh, reporting that Starlink internet systems had gone down, causing a catastrophic loss of communications for troops on the front lines, resulting in, quote, panicked calls from some soldiers to helpline numbers. Now, what this tells us is, of course, how, defend, how, de, how uh, dependent the Ukrainian troops have come on Elon Musk's equipment. Uh, something has taken those systems down and chaos ensued. Um, so Financial Times here also reporting Ukrainian forces reporting Starlink outages during the push against uh, Russia. And I encourage you to freeze this page and have a look at it uh, because this is talking in detail about the uh, chaos that followed. And of course, the indication is that actually the Starlink uh, uh, communication system uh, was brought to a halt by Russian technology. Uh, but there are other reports, Newsweek, uh, Newsweek here, Starlink outages put dent in Ukrainian counteroffensive against Putin, yet the other headlines have said there was chaos. 
Um, Elon Musk put up an interesting tweet. He's complaining he hasn't been paid. He said, bad reporting by the Financial Times. This article falsely claims that Starlink terminals and services were paid for when only a small percentage have been. Uh, this operation has cost SpaceX $80 million and will exceed $100 million by the end of the year. As for what's happening on the battlefield, that's classified. Does this mean that we've now got entrepreneurs fighting major wars, Mike? Uh, it, this... do it does, Brian. And of course, this is, comes back to the um, integrated operating concept that the UK has been pushing so hard globally uh, because this is the idea of piggybacking military and intelligence operations on civilian infrastructure. And of course, then whenever that civilian infrastructure is attacked by an opposing force, then, of course, the headlines say civilian infrastructure attacked and no mention of the dual use. Um, so Starlink being used for that, Britain uh, bought or took a company, a satellite company called OneWeb out of, uh, uh, out of uh, liquidation in order to get the capability of building these uh, swarms of, of low Earth orbit satellites for exactly this kind of thing. It's going to be sold to the UK public as a, a sort of uh, a, a, a similar to Starlink, uh, an internet service for ordinary people, but its main purpose is defensive. And um, I think that's the same with Starlink. Yeah. Well, we just have one more to that uh, slide, if we can pop that back on screen, uh, because this is another tweet that is in the Newsweek article itself by Adam Kinzinger. Uh, it says, evidently, the Starlink system is down over the front lines of Ukraine. Elon Musk should make a statement about this or this should be investigated. This is, quote, a national security issue. Uh, well, the reality is that it seems to be that the Russians uh, now have electronic warfare equipment of a capability to take out this type of communication. Uh, my prediction is we're going to see more of this over the battlefield as the Russians really ramp up what they are capable of. Uh, but meanwhile, and you've already covered it, Mike, the BBC really pumping out the civilian target propaganda. So if you read the BBC's reports, uh, it's all about civilian targets, when in fact the Russians are targeting military and civilian infrastructure, which is helping the Ukrainian war effort. Uh, but if you look at the right of the screen there, there's comments by um, European and uh, world leaders. And of course, it's all about the uh, barbarous Russians and their dirty deeds on the battlefield. So this is now the result of the West's interaction into Ukraine utter destruction of Ukrainian infrastructure. Uh, so, so we've got a power plant here burning and there's many more pictures on social media uh, showing this sort of problem. Are we going to see the truth as to what's happening uh, in Ukraine, Mark? Because it seems uh, to me that we've got a number of people peddling misinformation and disinformation specifically for governments and special agencies. You've been having a look at Claire Wardle. Yes. Um, she's involved a lot in trying to debunk people that are very skeptical, of course, of the whole COVIDocracy and climate deniers. I'm sure it'll it'll traipse into election deniers. Remember, there's all these types of deniers now. And one of us, any of us, must be at least one of them, right? We stand accused and we almost have no defense if you raise any questions at all. And yeah, that, that would dovetail into anybody that might um, question the narrative on Ukraine. Why wouldn't it, right? 
uh, anybody that questions the narratives in these other areas is suspect. So why wouldn't they come down on people that question the common Ukrainian narrative, um, which, as we say, you know, as we said a few minutes ago, it involves these outlandish claims that the Russians would just abandon a high quality, brand new, dependable, expensive weaponry and just turn tail and run when the independent analysts you guys have had on the show have shown pretty definitively that the Russians have the upper hand and we know that they want to secure the eastern regions and uh, make them separate republics and have a clear corridor down to the Crimea, which is, of course, explains why they repaired that bridge so quickly. They have uh, important Navy assets down there. So, yeah, Claire Ward Wardle, am I saying it right? Claire Wardle, PhD. Uh, I looked up a little something on her. She's co-founder and the U.S. director of First Draft and the world's foremost nonprofit focused on research and practice to address misinformation and disinformation. Under her leadership, First Draft has emerged as the global leader in combating mis- and disinformation online as a think-and-do tank. Not just a think tank, mind you, a think-and-do tank. First Draft has conducted expansive on-the-ground work during international elections ooh, to identify false news stories, couldn't be their own, right? Most likely to spread and blunting their force. I believe we're seeing the same thing on the screen here. Previously, Wardle was a research fellow at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the JFK School of Government, Harvard. Before that, she was the research director at the Toe Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School. That's one of the biggest journalism schools in the country. They put out a magazine called the Columbia Journalism Review, a trade trade publication, a head of social media for the UN Refugee Agency, that figures, and director of news services for Storyful. Don't know what that is. But uh, going down a little bit, she was responsible for the design and development of the social media training program at the BBC one that's been taken up by over 3,000 staff there at the BBC. And she's one of the world's leading experts on user-generated content and has led two substantial research projects investigating how it's handled by news organizations. And of course, the kicker, who could have thought it? Wardle also sat on the World Economic Forum's Global Agenda Council on the Future of Information and Entertainment. So once again, another expert wearing all the brownie stripes of the establishment and evidently, this lady is going to be a, a leading voice. Uh, she's currently at Brown University in Rhode Island, which this little biography fails to mention. Uh, she came out of uh, the Annenberg School, I think it's called, in Pennsylvania. But, yeah, she's one to watch. And uh, first draft, this think-and-do tank, I think, is going to be pretty prominent in trying to uh, debunk people like us, you might say. Uh, okay, thank thank you for that, uh, Mark. Well, I, I was thinking common purpose as you showed me a training involvement with the BBC. She's trained 3,000 people. But of course, many years ago, it was the political charity, as I call them, common purpose, that was busy inside the BBC helping to reframe, transform their people. Um, now, we're not saying Miss Wardle's doing anything wrong. The key point is we'd like to ask a question, what exactly is she doing? And where does her allegiance lie? Uh, just a quick update exactly. on yes. Uh, just a quick update on uh, Friday's uh, program and Vanessa's uh, coverage of or questioning the, the situation with respect to mandatory vaccination uh, with the Russian military and particularly the 
people that are being called up for the special operation. Uh, Riley Wagerman has published an update on this this morning. Uh, Sputnik 5 uh, not included in the list of mandatory vaccinations for uh, mobilized Russians. Um, so uh, uh, he has issued a retraction or a, a clarification of the earlier position uh, that uh, that uh, COVID-19 vaccination for Russian, called up Russian uh, uh, reservists uh, was a thing. Uh, Vanessa, sorry, apologies for this. Vanessa saying very clearly on Friday that she felt that based on her conversations with people that she'd met while she was in Russia, uh, that that was not a thing. Um, but uh, apparently it's not a thing. Now, uh, Brian, there is the wider issue of uh, mandatory vaccinations for military personnel. The UK and the US did that going into Iraq, for example, yeah, right. and it caused a whole host of problems for many, many people. Um, so yeah. we can't ever applaud uh, this type of, I mean, but I do, I, I realize that they would argue that they have justification for doing it. Well, um, yeah, we haven't got time to go into the full thing. But of course, one of the big problems with the vaccination policy for troops going into Iraq was that they were given an absolute cocktail of things. Um, and uh, many of the people com uh, commenting in a medical sense have said that it was the sheer number uh, of individual things that they were they were given in, in injections, which caused the problem. Uh, from the Russian side, how do the Russians see Ukraine? They've already identified the bio labs within Ukraine. Could it be that the Russians are going to be very careful with troops operating in Ukraine? Because as far as they're concerned, they already have the the evidence of of bio labs carrying out experimentation and labs backed by American concerns or American interests at the very least. So is it unusual for troops to be vaccinated? No, it isn't. Uh, but I think a lot of passion here uh, coming out because, of course, people have very different views over what took place with the world vaccination policy for COVID-19. Uh, indeed. Now, I want to highlight this article from The Intercept. Uh, the CIA thought Putin would quickly conquer Ukraine. They say, why did they get it so wrong? And the subheadline says high-tech surveillance may have blinded the U.S. to how uh, corruption has weakened the Russian military. Now, uh, there was one particular uh, paragraph that I really wanted to highlight from this because it echoes what Brian was talking about slightly earlier, uh, and that's this. Uh, yet clandestine American operations inside Ukraine are now far more extensive than they were early in the war when, the U when U.S. intelligence office officials were fearful that Russia would steamroll over the Ukrainian army. Uh, there's a much larger presence of both CIA and U.S. special operations personnel and resources in Ukraine than there were at the time of the Russian invasion in February, uh, several current and former intelligence officers told The Intercept. I think that's quite an admission. Yes, and it's clearly true. I mean, you know, for Syria, we had the fact that uh, at one stage the British government was saying no boots on the grounds, and yet the reality was that special forces were operating in Syria for a very protracted time. And this is one of the dangers, isn't it, that um, these highly trained military are now being used as a private army of what? The cabinet office. Nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody knows what the missions are. Yeah. We've got a trust, <laughs> trust, mistrust in her use of these uh, special forces people. It's a dangerous situation. Uh, now, uh, let's move on to energy. And uh, I want to highlight this article from the local IT.IT. .IT. This is uh, Italian press, of course. 
key points. What are Italy's new heating restrictions for the winter? And this is quite, I didn't know that this was the case, but uh, firstly, they say it's important to know that Italy has long had rules dictating exactly when residents can have their heating on. Uh, from, the date, from the date on which you can switch on the central heating to the number of hours a day you can use it. These rules have been adjusted this year to mean that the overall winter heating season will be shortened by 15 days, postponing the switch on date by eight days and bringing the switch off forward by seven. And that's according to a press release from the Italian government. And the other thing to note about this is that they have now put a, a limit on the temperature in people's homes in Italy. So, and in fact, in workplaces as well. So in, in Italy this winter, uh, if you are uh, um, in a commercial setting, um, you'll only be allowed to have 18 degrees as your uh, thermostat setting. And at home, in uh, your home, it'll be 19 degrees Celsius, of course. Uh, but uh, that's pretty draconian. And brought on by, uh, by, it has to be said, brought on by the Italians themselves working within the uh, EU policy to bring sanctions on Russia and, and energy supply. So self-induced. Um, in the meantime, in Germany, people out over the weekend uh, protesting the energy situation. But of course, naturally, would they do anything else? Deutsche Welle deciding that these are only far right uh, demonstrations and so not to worry about them. Uh, actually, lots of people uh, at these, pres at these uh, uh, protests. Um, and then of course, uh, uh, in France, uh, it gets even more interesting because in Paris, uh, we had this going on and you can see thousands of people out for this. And so what does the tweet say? Let's get out of NATO. Uh, Shouted thousands and thousands of French people this afternoon in Paris. Enormous, long live peace. Uh, that's quite a development as well. Well, it's encouraging, Mike, isn't it? It's encouraging to see people on the streets talking about peace. Um, but um, there's going to have to be some massive changes in governments before they're going to achieve peace. Um, and uh, OK, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK column does, and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there where you can pick something up at the UK column shop. But please do share uh, the material that you find on the various platforms. OK, well, we're going to come back to you, Mark. And the key question is, um, are elections going to sort out our problems with governments? You've got some comments here on uh, Texas and uh, Georgia prosecutors. Yeah, the big kahuna, the November 8 election is just around the corner here in the States. Amid all this speculation that Trump will run again in 2024, many in the MAGA wing of the Republicans and even some changeover Democrats are kind of wishing Trump would run, if only because it's so dull if he doesn't. But yeah, in this case, this is out of Yahoo News reported by the New York Times, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, and this is amid all the hard evidence I have right here in my three-ring binder that there really was serious election fraud, game-changing election fraud in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Georgia, et cetera. And amid this, we have this story that you're showing, and this is District Attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, Fannie Willis, and witnesses in Texas, from Texas, are being called to testify in a Georgia criminal investigation into former President Donald Trump and his allies, and they have not always come willingly, these witnesses. A number of them have fought their subpoenas in their home state courts, Texas and elsewhere, only to have local judges order them to cooperate with the state of Georgia. 
That was the case with Trump-aligned lawyers, John Eastman in New Mexico, Jenna Ellis in Colorado, and Rudy Giuliani in New York. Uh, Giuliani was told by an Atlanta judge that he could come on a train, on a bus, or even by Uber after his lawyer said his health conditions prevented him from flying. So Georgia is buckling down, led by someone who's proven to have told egregious lies, and that's the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. He's the guy that farmed out the entire voter registration list of the state of Georgia to Salesforce, run by Mark Benioff, who's big at the World Economic Forum. And so this is really just the establishment circling the wagons and trying to throw dust in the air to cover up the growing evidence that there was serious game-changing election fraud uh, at the 2020 uh, election in November of that year, the presidential one. And so they're going through this big circus to try and uh, get anyone they can and depose them and get them to testify on the record in Georgia so they can claim that a lot of Trump's allies, attorneys and different people are just liars and, um, and exploiters and that they're just Trump partisans and they would do anything to cover up Trump's big lie that the election was stolen from him. So it's a lot of legal theater to, to cover up the deeper and very disturbing uh, facts that, that uh, I have right here. So that's what that story is really about. Uh, it, it would be counterproductive to go and do it in a lot more detail. I can do that another time maybe. But yeah, now you're showing um, uh, one of the key things there, and that's from Voter GA, Voters Organized for Trusted Election Results in Georgia, uh, one of the most reliable sources I've ever seen on election fraud. Who says there was no 2020 election fraud? And I have already outlined on this show, uh, UK column, the problems in Georgia, so I won't go there. Just some examples out of Wisconsin. Over 200,000 ballots were placed into drop boxes that the Wisconsin Supreme Court confirmed are illegal. Also in Wisconsin, the Legislative Audit Bureau found that 57,000 voters who, regi who registered at the time they voted on election day could not be verified as required by law. Now see, that's a double whammy. No registration should take place at the time that someone votes. That's another COVID change they made in November 2020, at least in some states. I, I was an election worker myself in Michigan in 03 and 04 in Pawpaw Township, Michigan, Van Buren County. And it would have been insane in 03 or 04 to register people on the day of voting. That just wasn't tolerated in Michigan at all. And then on top of it, we have that discrepancy. Also, you have the nursing home population in Wisconsin of 92,000 was inflated to a 100% turnout in 66 homes in three of the largest counties, the total injection of invalid ballots from nursing homes was likely more than enough invalid ballots to exceed Biden's alleged 20,682 margin of victory. So nursing homes alone in Wisconsin may have flipped the outcome. There were 7 million voter roll entries for Wisconsin's 5 million citizens. I don't know how you get 7 million for 5 million, and under 4 million eligible voters, including 556,000 entries for people over the age of 104. And the Racine County Sheriff recommended charges against the Wisconsin Election Commission members for nursing home fraud. 
And that's just some of the examples out of Wisconsin alone. Arizona, the, the well-known audit out there, determined over 50,000 illegal ballots were cast based on a variety of reasons. 9,041 more ballots were processed than were sent to voters. A signature presence detection analysis performed by Dr. Shiva Iduri found that 4,499 ballot envelopes that were accepted did not even have a signature, which in my training would automatically invalidate the ballot. Over a million election files, Arizona, were deleted from various election data devices before the audit could even begin there. And yet we have the media as this uh, posting kind of a cartoons uh, situation here shows, the media keeps, keeps telling the great big lie that there's you know no, no uh, significant sign of election fraud in any of these battle battleground states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona. So um, this, is, this is also, again, what Claire Wardle is involved in and training people in newsrooms across the country to try and get them to not look at what I'm talking about right now. Yeah. So and keep that in mind. Mark, as, as you went through uh, that situation, which is just incredible, I'm thinking to myself, and this is the States, this is America. Um, Putin, though, carries out a referendum, a referendum in uh, the Ukrainian eastern uh, uh, regions, and he's accused of rigging the elections. He's accused of all sorts of things. And then you're casually taking us through the reality of elections in America. The dual standards now are truly incredible. But let's, uh, let's move on to uh, matters to do with health. And uh, you, you've got some very, two very interesting video clips coming up. But before we get there, World Health Summit 2022. Um, what caught your eye with this? Well, really, this one's more of an announcement. Um, I've been working on an article for UK Columns website to update the COVID WHO treaty, the global treaty they're working on. I don't think I have to emphasize just how dangerous that is to our civil liberties. If they can get a treaty put together where all the signatory nations would basically surrender or soften their freedom to make their own rules, especially the states within the US, for example, Texas, Florida, and, and elsewhere that were able to sort of mitigate against the COVIDocracy and say, you're not gonna totally lock us down. So if a WHO COVID treaty comes up and it diminishes the ability of individual nations or states within nations to balk at or rebel from another COVID crackdown, that's gonna be pretty disastrous. And so I'm holding off writing that article to update the COVID treaty because what this article you're showing talks about is uh, October 16 through 18 coming right up in Berlin, Germany, they're having the World Health Summit 2022. And this press accreditation, it looks like I'm able to get it as long as I don't go there in person, which I can't afford to anyway. And there'd be too many restrictions uh, in terms of masking probably and costs. But it looks like this can be covered um, remotely through live stream. So I'm gonna be covering this. And I just wanted to point out that, that this event is happening because they're certainly going to keep fine tuning this idea of a uh, WHO um, COVID world treaty. And so this is just an announcement again that this event's coming up. Uh, Federal Chancellor of Germany, Olaf Scholz will be there. Emmanuel Macron of France will be there. Of course, the WHO director, 
uh, Tedros, we call him for short. And uh, they're going to be really chipping away at this uh, global COVID treaty. So there'll be more after that event when I write up the uh, update on that treaty. Okay, Mark, thank you for that. Well, I'm going to put this under the good news uh, banner because we are seeing more and more professionals now speaking out uh, against problems they see with the whole of the COVID-19 vaccination policy and lockdown as well for some of those individuals. You've got two interesting clips here. Just give us a short introduction um, to this gentleman speaking and we can, uh, we can get them running. Okay, uh, which clip is this? Is this Dr. Asim Malhotra? Yes, it is. Yes. Um, so it's. Oh, okay. Um, Just making sure. Um, well, he. Um, let me see. This is a peer reviewed scientific review uh, regarding the Journal of Insulin Resistance written by this cardiologist, Dr. Asim Malhotra, M A L H O T R A. And it calls for the immediate suspension of all COVID shots as real world as real world data show that they cause more harm than good. Um, I don't really have his CV right here in front of me. No, what, uh, Mark, he, it's, uh, I, I think he says it all in these two little clips. Let's let's run the clips yeah. and uh, see what this gentleman's got to say. Yeah, go right ahead. My name is Dr. Asim Malhotra, consultant cardiologist. Today I share my most recent publication published in the peer-reviewed International Journal of Insulin Resistance. The title of my paper is Curing the Pandemic of Misinformation on the COVID mRNA Vaccines Through Real Evidence-Based Medicine. In part one of the paper, I aim to determine through critical analysis of randomized control trial data and real-world evidence, the true benefits and harms of the COVID mRNA vaccines with special emphasis on the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine. The conclusions are quite sobering. In the non-elderly population, the numbers needed to treat to prevent one COVID death run into the thousands. Reanalysis of randomized controlled trial data from both Moderna and Pfizer reveals one is more likely to suffer a serious adverse event from the COVID-19 vaccines than to be hospitalized with COVID-19. Pharmacovigilance data, coupled with plausible biological mechanism of harm, is also deeply concerning, especially in relation to cardiovascular safety. Mirroring a potential signal from Pfizer's phase three trial, there is also a significant increase in out-hospital cardiac arrests in England in 2021. Data which is also replicated in Israel with an increase in heart attacks and sudden cardiac death in people aged between 16 and 39, specifically related to the COVID mRNA vaccines and not related to COVID. So Mark, this, this is interesting because uh, to a large extent, this is a change of view by this particular professional. We've got a, we've got a second part to, to show as well. Um, but uh, I regard this as positive that when we see people, whatever their backgrounds, they're now starting to look at the actual data in front of them, then clearly they've got concerns. Yeah, that's my understanding too, is that initially he was more or less um, in favor of the vaccine program. Of course, I, I always hesitate to use the word vaccines like I learned at the Red Pill Conference in July in um, Indianapolis, their mRNA 
modifying injections, DNA modifying injections. So um, they're not really vaccines in the uh, uh, you know absolute sense. Therefore, there's a legal snag there. I want to be very careful about that and call them injections, even though it's sometimes just easier to use the word generically vaccines. That being said, it's interesting too that he talks about the pandemic of misinformation almost on the same plane that he talks about the pandemic of the vax effects, the, the effects of these so-called vaccines being much more dangerous than COVID itself. So he's hitting it on two tiers. And that again, takes us back to Miss Claire Wardle that is attacking misinformation and only that misinformation, quote unquote, that questions the COVIDocracy, that we got this guy doing the right thing, that you can also have a pandemic of misinformation the other way, where um, you don't question the COVIDocracy at all and you declare these so-called vaccines to be more or less absolutely safe. Um, that is arguably a much more dangerous angle or type of misinformation or disinformation. So this guy's to be commended for hitting it you know, along both areas. Okay, thank you. Well, let's have a look at uh, just the second little clip of what he has to say. In part two of the paper, I aim to get to the root cause to understand why authorities and sections of the medical profession supported unethical, coercive and misinformed policies such as vaccine mandates and vaccine passports undermining the principles of ethical evidence-based medicine and informed consent. These regrettable actions are the symptom of the medical misinformation mess, the tip of a mortality iceberg where prescribed medications are now estimated to be the third most common cause of death after heart disease and cancer. Underlying root causes of this include regulatory capture, Guardians that are supposed to protect the public are in fact funded by the very corporations that stand to gain from the sale of those medications. A failure of public health messaging has also resulted in wanton waste of resources and a missed opportunity to help individuals lead healthier lives through relatively simple low-cost lifestyle changes. In conclusion of both papers, there is a strong scientific, ethical and moral case to be made that COVID-19 vaccines rollout must stop immediately until raw data has been released for fully independent scrutiny. Looking to the future, the medical and public health professions must recognise these failings and eschew the tainted dollar of the medical industrial complex. It will take a lot of time and effort to restore trust in these institutions, but the future and the health of both the medical profession and humanity depend on it. To read both papers, which are free and open access, please visit insulinresistance.org. Thank you. Uh, well, Mark, I don't know whether you'd like to add anything to that, but um, some pretty clear statements there, one of which is uh, the programme should be stopped until we know more about what's going on. Uh, we're supposed oh, to... Oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Um, yeah, sorry. No, the, the, um, you know, we know that the former shots, like um, uh, so-called swine flu shots, after only a relatively minor number, 50, 60, less than 100 adverse reactions, 
not even involving deaths, that those shots were stopped, uh, that the that the goalposts would be moved so far that the threshold would be so high, astronomically high, before we make any changes with COVID is just criminal. This guy's just telling what telling us what we all have needed to hear. Um, not necessarily what a lot of people want to hear, you know, those that are under the spell of this whole COVIDocracy, but he's plainly stating what we've all needed to hear on both sides of the pond, that there's more than enough, enough data here to justify stopping this rollout. Therefore, a COVID global treaty under the, under the WHO that would be possibly the death knell for freedom would absolutely not be necessary. So it's really important to disseminate this. I would encourage viewers of UKC to really uh, look at this and really spread the word uh, to create more pressure to slow down the juggernaut on that treaty. Okay, Mark, thank you very much. Well, we're going to end on that note. We'll be doing more uh, about excess deaths on uh, Wednesday. So we'll come back onto uh, this general topic, but we're gonna thank you for the input on that. That really brings us to the end of uh, today's UK Column News. We're gonna thank everybody for joining us. And as always, we're going to thank people who support us and are long-term supporters of the UK column because we really can only do this with your help and financial support. We'll be back in a few moments for extra time. Thank you all for joining us. Bye-bye.